welcome to the Way of Oneness podcast. Hello everyone, I'm Christopher Kakuyo-sensei, and I'm the sensei with the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship. We are an independent, transsectarian, all-inclusive Western Sangha in the Mahayana tradition. The Way of Oneness podcast is a collection of our Dharma talks delivered at the Salt Lake Buddhist Sangha. Enjoy the Dharma talk. For today's Dharma talk, I'd like to talk about the five, the framework for ethical action or sila. So I want to start with something that I read recently, and it was a study that was done in the United Kingdom that looked at Western meditators and yoga practitioners. Now, the idea of the study is they wanted to see what the effects were on their practice and the results were really not what they expected. So the finding of the study were that contemporary meditators and yoga practitioners can actually inflate the egoic self. The study found that people had a higher opinion of themselves after the exercise and mindfulness. Western Buddhism also may encourage people to focus on their personal anxieties, and it also may promote self-improvement rather than overcoming selfishness. Okay, so the outcomes of these studies in and of themselves are not negative, though I think they do illustrate that the end goals of more traditional Buddhist practice are different than what some mindful practitioners' goals may be. Now, Buddhist teachings and mindfulness are not exactly the same, although they may be drawn from a similar source. The teachings of the Buddha Dharma are not simply some ancient self-improvement program to help better self-esteem, but are teachings rooted in the transcendence of suffering and the healing of a deep woundedness that is born out of ignorance. To accomplish these things, the first thing that the Buddha taught was to relinquishing of our identification with the small self, the the non-self, and opening ourselves up to an identification with the interdependent or boundless self of interconnection to all things, to oneness. The Buddha's realization of non-self is an important element of his awakening to how to overcome such needless suffering. Whenever the teachings come to a new culture, they find an audience that has different needs, and because of that, there's a tension as the teaching rubs up against the values of the new culture. Many times, there's a synergistic transformation or reframing, such as when Buddhism went to China from India, for example. The question I want to pose, especially for us Americans, is when does a new culture dilute something so much that it's no longer the same thing? So some have called or seen the more traditional Buddhist practices as just leftover nonsense from an earlier time. And just because some of them may not make sense to white Americans living in the first part of the 21st century in a dysfunctional point of our history, does not mean that they are nonsense. Because something is different or triggers us because of our own journey through Judeo-Christian traditions does not mean that there is not wisdom in such things. I hope all of us can cultivate the I don't know mind when it comes to these things. It kind of reminds me of the baby in the bathwater. As the old saying goes, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. 
And I love what C.J. Dio Sensei from The Bright Dawn Way of Oneness Sangha has cautioned. He says that we may not want to simply disregard 2,500 years of field-tested Buddhist practice. And I just love that idea of field-tested Buddhist practice. These things have stayed within the practice of Buddhism over centuries because there's something there that works. The authors of the study noticed that this tension we're talking about, the old values and the new values, when they hypothesized about the results that happened in their UK study. Quote, Western practitioners of Buddhism fail to practice with an eye toward the selflessness that should characterize the goal of these efforts. Through yoga and meditation were originally intended as ways to calm the ego, many non-Buddhist practitioners do these activities with an eye to self-improvement or calming personal anxieties, end quote. This has something that other writers have noticed, that the more therapeutic aspects of Buddhist teaching is what a lot of people grab onto, and this makes sense in a hyper-individualistic society as ours. In addition, being in our post-capitalist world where we tend to sell everything and mindfulness has just become another hot product. And there's a term that has been coined to refer to this marketing of mindfulness, and that's called McMindfulness. And it, it just illustrates the tendencies of Westerners to market everything mindful. We have mindful golf, mindful eating, mindful investing, mindful sex, and hopefully the only kind. Mindfulness is the new missing ingredient in everything from your 401k to your gardening. Your retirement will be greener and so will your garden if we simply do it mindfully. Here is where I think the biggest distinction between simple mindfulness and Buddhist practice lies. Much of the mindfulness we find is devoid of what concerned the Buddha which was a freeing ourselves from the deep-seated suffering and from our misperception of ourselves as separate from the rest of nature, and that uh, our ethical actions have a direct correlation to how we live and our life. Don't get me wrong, mindful awareness is an integral part of our practice, but it's only part of the practice. In the days of the Buddha, lay people such as us did not meditate. That is a rather modern invention at the end of the 19th century in um, Southeast Asia. And it was part of a nationalist movement uh, to address the colonialization by the British Empire. Now, initially, the Buddha gave lay practitioners the simple practice of what are called the five precepts, and that was it. They were not expected to meditate. Now, today, many Buddhists meditate, but the majority of Buddhists do not meditate. But when it comes to Western Buddhism, that is the cornerstone of being a Buddhist, is this idea of meditation and mindfulness. Now, what most Western Buddhists, though, may not understand that the beginning of skillful meditation, even for those who are practicing meditation, is the grounding and ethical practice off the cushion. The first step is not the cushion. The first step is skillful action before the cushion and after the cushion. This is called sila or shila, and it is the basic ethical component of the Buddha Dharma. 
Now, this component is found in the five precepts and also in the Eightfold Path. Now, here are the five precepts. The first one, I undertake the training principle to refrain from taking life. Two, I undertake the training principle to refrain from taking that which is not freely given. Three, I undertake the training principle to refrain from sexual misconduct. Four, I undertake the training principle to refrain from unwise, unskillful speech. And last five, I undertake the training principle to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. So some have compared these five as the five commandments of Buddhism, but you'll notice something right off. The language is different. The Judeo-Christian commandments are in the language of thou shalt not, and here the language is that of practice and affirmation. I like taking the set of five and refocusing them on the affirmational instead of the prohibitional. So the first one would be affirming life, second, be giving, third, honor the body, fourth, manifest truth, and five, proceed clearly. Now, Thich Nhat Hanh has taken the five precepts into his own language, in the language of mindfulness, and he calls the five precepts the mindfulness trainings. And they are the reverence for life, refrain from killing, true happiness, refrain from stealing, true love, refrain from misusing sexuality and intimacy. Loving and compassionate speech is number four, refrain from lying. And number five is nourishment and healing or refrain from intoxicants. He goes on to say about the trainings, quote, the first training is to protect life, to decrease violence in oneself, in the family and in society. The second training is to practice social justice, generosity, not stealing and not exploiting other living beings. The third is the practice of responsible sexual behavior in order to protect individuals, couples, families, and children. The fourth is the practice deep listening and loving speech to restore communication and for reconciliation. The fifth is about mindful consumption to help us not bring toxins and poisons into our body or mind. End quote. You will notice from the language that each of these precepts is more than just simple dogmatic black and white injunction. Each invites us not to simply obey, but to engage with what each means for us in our individual lives and circumstances. Each of these guidelines, trainings, focus our practice when we are not meditating to an even greater and more everyday mindfulness. As Roshi Reb Anderson wrote in his book, Being Upright, quote, the guidelines provide a framework of questioning that turns the lens of this practice away from ourselves and towards how we can serve others, end quote. For me, the most important thing about the precepts is that they're a field of practice, an ongoing conversation we have with ourselves and our actions and motivations. They are a framework to help us become more intimate with ourselves. What the five precepts are not is a checklist of our failures or how we are offending God because of their violation. The precepts are not about keeping a God happy, but are about behaviors that align us with how things really are. 
that align us with our highest aspirations of kindness, balance, harmony, and compassion. The Buddha never said, do it because I command you. Matter of fact, he was quite the opposite. Here is what he said regarding his teachings, and this is from the Pali Canon. Quote, when you know for yourselves these qualities are skillful, blameless, praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain, remain in them. End quote. The Buddha understood that real ethical action and transformation comes from within and ultimately cannot be coerced from without. That is why our initial relationship with the precepts is contemplative by nature, and therefore whose manifestation comes from within in a natural outflow instead of guilt or shame of some external ideal. The ethical ideal is not something outside of ourselves, but something that comes from within us as it flows outward. It is interesting to observe Western Buddhist relationship with the precepts. Some don't even think of them, and others can be outright fundamentalist. There are, ironically, plenty of black and white Buddhist practitioners, and you may have bumped into a few, especially on social media. It's hard to change our relationship to the black and white certainty of some ethical guidelines because we are a manifestation of all the causes and conditions that have brought us here. Coming out of a theistic tradition, it can be hard to let go of the certainty, the black and whiteness of thou shalt not, or react to anything that seems similar. I have seen fellow Buddhists, again, of course, on social media, calling each other out regarding eating meat or being only a vegetarian or about drinking beer or having sex, going off on how a white lie about your grandmother's dress is violating the precepts against lying and on and on and on. Buddhism teaches that there are 10 fetters, mental chains that keep us bound, and one of them is the dependence on moral rules and religious observances as an end into themselves. I don't drink. I'm a vegan. Therefore, I am a good Buddhist. And what does that make all the Buddhists that do not? Ha! Even the precepts removed from mindfulness increases the side of our ego. <laughs> mindfulness removed from the precepts increase our ego. They're interdependent. Now, one of the things that we have already seen is that the precepts are non-dogmatic. And we've been talking about how us Westerners struggle with this. And I think it's because the commandments are normative. Normative ethics are all about right and wrong and actions and behaviors that one must do to be a good person. The precepts are not about this ideal of how a person must be. They're more practical, and they're less prescriptive and more descriptive. So what are they descriptive of? Well, the Buddhist focus was on how things are. The precepts are not about moral obligation imposed by society or even the Buddha, but they are descriptive. They are descriptions of how an awakened being interacts with the world, how one acts when one is truly free, 
the behaviors and the actions are not separate, but how an awakened being walks through life. These are called non-normative ethics. These are not telling us what everyone must do to be a good person, but how we can be. They are invitations. They are training workshop in finding and releasing our inner Buddha. I think this is important. So I want to say again, the precepts are not about what has to be, what one has to be to be a good Buddhist, but they are a field of practice. And as a field of practice, they do point to the spontaneous, compassionate action of an awakened being. We engage with them, we practice with them. It's part of a discipline because the more we're focused on them, the more likely we are to act in that way. And it's a training. It's a practice. And here's the thing with all practice. Anyone who's practiced martial arts, played sports, or played a musical instrument of done art, we fail. We fail all the time, and we continue, and we practice again and again and again. And we're practicing not to be good, but to align ourselves with the path of freedom. Again, this path and the path laid out by the Buddha is not dogmatic. It asks us to engage with the teachings. And I really appreciate the way one teacher put it in regards to the first precept about affirming life. And, and this is the quote. This is what Buddhism asks us to do, to investigate the circumstances of our lives, to live with difficult questions and address them as best we can in the moment to see how far we can go from refrain from killing in our lives, knowing that the extent to which we are willing to go may change and evolve as we proceed along the path. End quote. Our engagement with all the precepts are like this. They are invitations to this kind of engagement, this reflection, this contemplation, this field of practice. And I want to emphasize that part again. Practice. In our fellowship's formal ceremony, for those that want to become a Buddhist and those that take the precepts, know that there is a line in our ceremony that is unique to our community. And here's the thing. Again, you will fail again and again when working with the precepts. And some of us in our experience from our previous tradition, this was a source of shame and sometimes made us stop trying. But since we fail over and again, and the precepts are a field of practice, well, then it's okay to fail. It's part of the process. In our ceremony, after each precept is read this line, joyfully entrusting in Amida when they fall short and simply begin again, end quote. So that's giving us the permission to just start again, not to carry the baggage of all our failures, but to realize that that's part of the process, that we will fall down and we will get up and we will fall down and we will get up because it's not Buddhist perfect. It's Buddhist practice. We all need to remind ourselves when working with the precepts, it is Buddhist practice, not Buddhist perfect. 
So over the next few Dharma talks, I want to take time and I want to talk about each of these five precepts. And I want to do that. I want to I have a conversation with them, reflect on them. What does it mean? What does it look like? Um, look at them in context. And, and, and hopefully that will inform our practice and that it will help our practice become even deeper. And by engaging with the five precepts, it will inform and deepen our mindfulness and meditation practice so that we may achieve that goal of the Buddha to be free of our unnecessary suffering and to be more awake in the world. I look forward to that sharing. Dhamma Amida Butsu. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our fellowship, please go to saltlakebuddhist.org. We look forward to having you here again. Namo Amida Butsu.